Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a common remediation topic. We're going to focus on vapor intrusion, and we're specifically going to talk about vapor intrusion and mitigation and have a discussion around the selection and design of vapor intrusion mitigation systems, and we're going to focus on vapor barriers. That's a relatively common um, mitigation technique. The reason we're going to focus on those is because selection of those types of systems still really isn't covered by any hard regulatory guidelines. So there's a lot of room for interpretation that goes into the selection of vapor barriers. And so our aim here is to discuss that interpretation and what it means, you know, and how you might go about approaching that if vapor intrusion is something that you deal with and your role. So to help me with this conversation, I've got Paul Haggerty back on the program. Paul's been in remediation and design for a few decades, so he's the right guy to help us. He's been here on the podcast before. We've talked SPCC. We've talked NPDES. So if you didn't listen to those episodes, I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to those. Um, but Paul, appreciate you being back, and let's just get right into it and get into the meat. Paul, to give practical advice on a topic, oftentimes we start with the very basics, so we'll do the same thing here. Tell us about vapor intrusion and how common of an issue is this to deal with, and, and what is it? Just give us your broad perspective. Thanks for having me back, Colin. So as the term implies, this is intrusion of vapors into either a working space or a living space. And these vapors come from the subsurface. They can either come from, let's say, an underground storage tank leak or a groundwater plume that is coming from offsite, which then yields a VOCs or volatile organic compounds up into the living space. And when you have that occur, that can cause some chronic health issues. So that's the basics. How common is it? It's more and more common these days based on this concept of brownfields, right? 50 years ago, it was pretty easy to find green, uncontaminated property. But when you're a developer these days or when you're in industry, it's harder and harder to find clean property. So we're starting to build on contaminated property. And when you do that, you have to take certain conditions into account. And one of those being vapor mitigation. If this is an issue that you're dealing with and you need to resolve, what are some of the most common tools that, that you see used to mitigate vapor intrusion issue? Okay. So first off, let, let's um, parse out the term of remediation versus mitigation, right? We're talking about vapor mitigation, which is mitigating or preventing vapor from getting into the indoor space. You're not necessarily remediating the underlying problem, and that's a misnomer. So, But as far as uh, vapor mitigation goes, there's really two large groups. One is active and one is passive. So today we'll talk about passive vapor mitigation, but just to give you some context, active vapor mitigation would be 
maybe a subsurface depressurization system, essentially having a, a pump or a vacuum of some sort to draw out those vapors from below the concrete slab before it gets into the space. But as far as passive vapor mitigation goes, that applies mostly to new construction. So if you build a building on a contaminated property, you would want to prevent those vapors from coming up into the living space or the working space. And you would do that most likely with some sort of membrane or barrier and then a passive venting system, such as those vapors do get to that barrier, they're passively vented to the exterior as opposed to getting to the building. And so then those barriers, they go by many different terms, geomembranes, they're, they're engineered products, they're usually composite in nature, meaning they're kind of like a sandwich. They have a bunch of different layers with different purposes for those different layers. They come in rolled products, or sometimes they come as a spray product where you actually have a contractor come out to the field and, and spray these barriers on the surface. Paul, I'm interested those the active mitigation approaches, would those that would those then be applied to more of the existing sites where you can't have the, the passive membrane? Is that sort of the distinction of where and how those get used? That's correct. Yeah, the most common active mitigation system would be something akin to uh, a radon system, right? Essentially a, a building which has known contamination in the interior, and you would then penetrate the slab, and you would install some piping and a blower to make sure those vapors don't get into the indoor space. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back then, though, to the focus, which is passive, and talk about barriers. So what are the criteria that folks would typically evaluate when they're looking at a barrier or they're trying to select a barrier? And and is one or two of those criteria maybe more important than the others? I'm curious where, where that all stands. Okay. We would usually look at uh, four or five different criteria. And I, I wouldn't say that one is more important. I would say they were they would all be just about as important. So if we list off a couple, one of them would be chemical compatibility. Obviously, I don't want to select a membrane, which is not compatible with the contaminant that I'm trying to stop from coming through, right? The next would be diffusion coefficient. How good is that membrane at preventing that contaminant from diffusing through? So you might think that a membrane is going to stop all vapors under all conditions, but you know higher concentrations of VOCs do eventually permeate up through the membrane. So if you were to say to me, hey, Paul, I've got a, a VOC problem. Please create a design for me. I would say, well, okay, what type of VOC do you have? Is it benzene? Is it PCE? Because I need to know that because I need to know what the diffusion coefficient is. Next would be uh, durability of the product, right? How thick is it? Does it have reinforcing in it? Is it durable enough such that when it gets installed in the field, it doesn't get penetrated as part of the installation process because then you have a bunch of pinholes, which then don't help you once you build the building on top. And then other installation criteria, which we normally look into, like how do you seal all the penetrations themselves? How do you bond the individual roles that you put down on the product? And then obviously cost is a, is a criteria as well that we always look into. Paul, I mentioned at the beginning during the intro that from a hard regulatory perspective, there isn't a lot out there 
when you're looking at these different criteria. There's not a lot from a regulatory lens that says you shall. So knowing that, is there any guidance perhaps? <laughs> is there any just general guidance that's been put out there by regulatory agencies or others that folks can rely upon when they're trying to select a barrier? Right. Yeah, good question. So there actually is a lot of guidance out there, right? There, there is federal guidance, meaning the EPA, they put out uh, screening levels. So they will establish what contaminant levels are acceptable versus not acceptable in an indoor space. Most states have their individual vapor intrusion guidance document of some sort. There's uh, industry groups. ITRC is a great one, Interstate Technology Regulatory Council. They have a vapor intrusion team. There's a new group that has been established, AVIP, Association of Vapor Intrusion Professionals. So there is a lot of guidance. In my experience, however, that guidance is focused mostly on characterizing the problem, assessing the exposure risk, how do you sample, how do you screen to see whether there is a problem versus not a problem. But when it comes time to say, yeah, there's a problem here, the guidance then doesn't go into a lot of detail as, as far as how to select the right barrier. They essentially say, go talk to your vendors and have the vendors tell you what barrier they think is best. So, Paul, if folks are then – folks are steered to vendors, I suppose, when it comes time to actually design that barrier, you've been working with folks for many years on this and helping folks select the best suited for purpose barrier that they can walk through some of what you and all four have done to maybe try to add some clarity to that process in the lack of maybe all, overall guidance, knowing that we're relying heavily on, on vendors for some of that feedback. Got it. And I don't want to downplay the vendor process, right? The vendors are, are very important in this process. It's their product. They know their product best. We certainly involve them. However, I mean, I, I'm an engineer and my seal goes on these designs. And so I'm not going to do a design which essentially says, hey, I called vendor A and vendor A told me to use this membrane product. We do our own evaluation internally to select the right type of barrier. So a couple of years ago, we attempted to use first off the, it's called, there's a model called the JE model or Johnson and Ettinger model. It was developed in the early 1990s. And that JE model is still industry accepted. And the, that model predicts the indoor air concentration of certain VOCs. If you knew a bunch of characteristics about the building itself, meaning is it a slab on grade? Is it a basement? How many cracks are in the concrete? What are the air exchanges per hour? And then if you knew a lot of criteria about the underlying contamination, what is the soil gas concentration? How deep is it? What type of soil is between the contamination and the building? So what we first did is we took that JE model and we tried to tweak it or modify it to essentially slip a membrane barrier into that model. And the model becomes really unstable and um, it, it really, the model wasn't made to actually model a barrier, but we tried and we got some data. We weren't really comfortable with it. So ultimately what we did is we developed our own internal model based on fixed first law of diffusion, which is what vapor intrusion really uh, follows upon. 
So, Paul, we're, we, we model things out. We're combining that with feedback from the vendor. So important back and forth to your point in that process. But when we use the more custom model that went beyond J and E, what what did we? What were the big picture? What were the big picture findings that you could share with uh, with the listeners? Sure. So again, when you run these models, what the model does is it predicts the indoor air concentration. And then we take that concentration and we compare it to certain uh, risk levels to determine whether there is an unacceptable either cancer risk or unacceptable hazard indice, which then drives whether you may need vapor intrusion or not. So what we had found both with the, you know, tricking the JE model and running our own model, what we found is even the most basic vapor intrusion, highest permeation coefficient was order of magnitudes adequate at protecting from a cancer risk, from an indoor air risk. So that's when our light bulb went on a bit and we said, well, why are the vendors making bigger and better and thicker and more robust membranes every day when the most basic membrane is orders of magnitude protective enough? Paul, maybe walk through knowing that there's bigger, better, there's different thicknesses, there's there's different choices to be made there. How does cost factor in? You know, what's the is is that a uh, a linear uh, cost as the as the thickness goes up? I mean, what's been your experience around how cost changes um, the thicker and bulkier the barriers get? Definitely, as things get thicker there's more material involved. So the price is going to go up. I would say that the installation cost is not gonna go up significantly. I think fundamentally, there certainly is an increase in cost as you get to more robust products. However, I, I come at this from a different perspective. When I have my client's interest at hand and science is telling me that a certain solution is adequate, then I have, better have a pretty good reason for spending more of their money than what might be needed. And I'll say this, there's, there, there certainly are reasons why we would wanna go with a more robust product or a thicker product. Maybe there's some installation concerns where you need, need more durability, or maybe you have a client who is ultra conservative and they want more protectiveness, that's fine. But us as engineers, I don't think that we should depart from good science without a good reason in spending more of our clients' money than what we have to. So, Paul, I'm, I'm someone out there. I'm in the process of selecting a barrier right now. Obviously, you have put some work in, as you described, to some of these models to really assess what's actually required in a given situation using some foundational principles. If I'm selecting a barrier right now, what's your advice? Who should I enroll? What should I look at? I just what's a what's a broad takeaway? Because you've done some good work on this. So how does that kind of now fit to to a listener that's in this process as we speak? Sure. So I, I certainly think that you should enroll either an engineer or someone who's who's going to look at your project and design the right solution. In this day and age, I don't think that you can install a building on a contaminated property without the regulators having an oversight, uh, without the need maybe for a permit of some sort. 
And then the need for uh, even the contractor to know what they're building and whether they're building it properly. So there's a certain amount of design and evaluation that goes into this process. And so we would certainly recommend that you get a good design engineer who's who has vapor intrusion experience to uh, design that solution for you. Paul, one follow-up question that I'm just curious about from a vendor perspective, if if I'm someone who's just getting into this space and, and I'm you know, in the first go around of having to think about these barriers, there's the engineering piece that you just mentioned from a vendor perspective, how many vendors are out there? Is there, is, is there, is there a few, is there hundreds, is there any, anything that you could share with the audience around that and, and maybe finding, knowing that's one important part of the puzzle. Uh, do you have any comments or suggestions around that and, and that selection and finding the right vendors? Sure. There's, I would say there's a few. There there are certainly not hundreds and there's, I don't want to advocate for one or another, but if we said the names, people would probably say, oh yes, I know that company. So I would, right. actually less than five, I would say there's, there's okay. two, three, four that compete for this market. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. I just wanted to maybe put some perspective on that as people are thinking about uh, the process and knowing they've got to select a, a vendor too, that they're not going to Google it and find the uh, a thousand entries that they're wading through. Paul, any other big picture advice before we uh, part ways here on, on this issue or anything else from a practical lens, just you've been doing this for a while, anything we didn't cover that we should have I think I'd probably just reiterate one of the last things that I said, which is um, as an engineer, we have an obligation. We have an obligation to protect um, public health and welfare, right? And so me, I'm not going to put my seal on a design where someone just said, ah, use my model one, two, three. I'm going to, I'm going to design it myself and have that reliance that we looked into it and we provided the right solution. Good perspective. Paul, I appreciate the uh, time today. Hopefully we can get together on another topic soon. I'm glad we talked a little bit of mitigation, not remediation. Thank you for correcting me on that. And um, I know that this is a vapor intrusion is something that we run a, we run across a fair number of clients and companies that are dealing with this within some lane of their organization. So I thought it was a timely topic. We had the right person here. Um, I hope it was helpful for folks. And Certainly hope that you will join us next time. Thanks. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company. 